0: Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today my guest is Cara Owsley. Cara is Director of Photography at the Cincinnati Enquirer and a national award-winning visual journalist. She was a photojournalist and photo editor on the Enquirer's 2018 Pulitzer Prize-winning Seven Days of Heroin project. Kara is also on the board of the Visual Task Force with the National Association of Black Journalists. Kara Owsley, welcome to the Real Issues, Real Conversations podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. We're recording this interview on November the 9th of 2020. We're doing it remotely. I'm in Columbus. You're in Cincinnati, I'm assuming. That's correct. And so we just this past weekend found out that our new president-elect is Joe Biden, and we are still very much in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. How are you doing during these strange times? I'm actually doing very well. Hearing the decision on Saturday afternoon,
1: Took a lot of anxiety off of me because being in the news business, I hate to say this, but a lot of times news dictates my life. You're on pins and needles either way, no matter who was going to win. So when I heard the
0: decision, it was just like a big relief. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to be a photojournalist? Ever since I was probably at seven or eight years old,
1: I always knew I wanted to be a photographer. I was always fascinated with cameras. So when I got to high school is when I started learning more about photography, exposures. I learned how to print in a black and white dark room. And so I was taught to have a conversation with my photo teacher at the time. Her name is Gail Antle. And she says, have you thought about what you want to do You know, when you go to college? And it's like, I want to be a photographer. And I said, well, where should I go? And she said, well, if you need to stay in state, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. She said, well, Western Kentucky has a great photo program. I didn't really do much research about the photography program. Had no idea it was photojournalism. I knew nothing about journalism. The only thing I knew is that my family, my mother, my father, my grandparents on both sides, everybody read the newspaper every day. I got accepted at Western Kentucky. And that's where my love for journalism grew. I knew nothing about it. I was not one of those kids that walked around with a police scanner trying to run to all the accidents and stuff like that. (laughs) Because we had several kids like that. I was not one of them. But what advantage I did have back then is that I knew how to print. I knew how to use a dark room. But learning how to capture a moment learning that you don't manipulate anything, you photograph what you see. I knew nothing of that. And then having my first internship in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the New Sentinel newspaper, that's when everything just clicked. I didn't realize probably until then that I was a people person. I always strived to be like my mother. I could just remember watching my mom. She was a vice president of a small bank. And I would watch how she would interact with her customers. And I used to be kind of shy. And I used to say, I want to be like my mom. I want to be able to talk to anybody. Like, no matter what they look like, I want to be able to just be able to approach people like her, not knowing that journalism was going to open that door to that. So that's how I got into this business. And I'm 25 years in now. I am at, I think, my fifth newspaper. I did two internships in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I got a job at this newspaper in Canton, Ohio. I went all the way to Biloxi, Mississippi, and I worked at the Sun-Herald for five years. And then after that, I got a job at the times Picayune newspaper in New Orleans. And so I lived in New Orleans when Katrina happened, August 2005. I lost everything I owned, lost everything. My daughter was five years old at the time. So I was homeless for about four months. Once I got her situated in Kentucky with my mom, I went back to New Orleans and was living with different people. I lived with different people for two and a half months. And I'm like, this is not going to work. I'm not with my daughter. My daughter can't come back here because her school is closed. And so I started looking for a job. And Cincinnati Inquirer flew me up for an interview. And they ended up offering me the job at the end of the interview. I've been here ever since. I've been here since December 2005. Okay, gosh, I'm sorry about all that you went through there. That sounds horrendous. But, you know, I have to tell you, you can use your experiences in your personal life to connect to people that you're trying to write about and photograph. Because I have connected with so many people when they hear my story. An example was last year we were doing a series on poverty, and it was called The Road, And I can remember one family in particular was very skeptical about talking to us and me in particular, because I was the one with the camera, but they did invite me in the home and I had on a New Orleans Saints hat. And the man said, you a Saints fan? I said, yes, sir, I am. And I told him that I used to live on the Gulf Coast. And I said, I ended up in Ohio because I lost my home in Hurricane Katrina. And that totally changed everything because at first he did not want me taking pictures at all.
0: And I connected with him that way. Right. Right. Of course, because now you're, I mean, super successful, but you don't think of somebody who has a position as a director of photography at this important newspaper as having once been homeless. No, no. And people are very surprised by
1: that. But when you live in the Gulf Coast area, everybody was impacted by Katrina.
0: Yeah. So I want to come back to something that you were talking about a little bit ago. You had Grown up doing photography, and then you were learning about photojournalism. Can you tell us some of the central differences between straightforward photography and photojournalism? So, the difference
1: between photography and photojournalism as a photojournalist, we capture what we see, right? We are trying to capture moments and we tell stories through our photographs and through video. We don't manipulate anything. So, that is the big difference. Now, I know some very, very good photographers who will like things, and I have envy because that is their specialty, and I may not do that as well. But you can take that same photographer and say, hey, can you go cover this breaking news event? They They don't understand that you have to basically be a fly on the wall. You don't put yourself into that situation. What we are there is to observe and to capture what we see. So that is the major difference. And then too, like, I used to shoot a lot of sports. I've shot everything from professional tennis to little league football, and there's etiquette to it. Like, you can't get up and walk off the court at any time you wanna do. Oh, I gotta go to the restroom, so I'm just gonna walk off while Serena is making a serve. No, you can't do that. (laughs) Even with golf, you can't be on your shutter, which are very loud, while the golfer is about to swing can't be any noise. So that kind of, it's it's a lot more to it than what people think. The other thing is we cover a lot of court. Here in Cincinnati, I've covered several murder trials. And when we cover murder trials, there tends to be what we call a pool photographer. So there's usually one still photographer and one videographer. And so the two of us, we really have to work together because we're standing right there beside each other and make sure we're not blocking each other and stuff like that. Um, And I have been the pool photographer uh, several times for some really big cases. And I love covering court. So as a portrait photographer, a portrait photographer wouldn't understand the etiquette of that. Like you can't lay on your shutter. You can't move. You can't have your phone in there.
0: What's lay on your shutter? Sorry, that's a terminology I don't understand. Yes,
1: yeah, so lay on your shutter. I never even thought about that. People wouldn't understand what that meant. So the camera that I typically use is actually a sports camera. That camera shoots, I think, 11 to 15 frames per second. And it is very noisy. And so it's like, that's how it sounds. So when you're covering court, you have to do click. Wait a minute. Click. The judge does not want to hear the shudder over and over and over. Some judges will say, no shudder at all. They don't want to hear anything. And that happened uh, one of the a very huge case here. Um, Ray Tenzing was tried twice for the murder of an unarmed black man. And so I was the photographer in both court proceedings. We had a meeting with a judge prior to, and that she was like, no shudder. So I actually contacted Canon Professional Services and they loaned me a camera that has a quiet mode cuz I have the sports camera that's super noisy. Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they loaned me they loaned me a camera and that's what I use in court. Just going back to what you were talking about, you were telling us about how in your family everybody read the newspaper every day and Am I right in understanding you're from an African-American family, right? I am. We recently had one of your former colleagues from the Inquirer, Mark Canute, on the podcast, and I had read his book, which is called Across the Color Line, Reporting 25 Years in Black Cincinnati, in which there's a foreword from Nathaniel Jones, a former judge in Cincinnati. And he's quoting from the 1968 Kerner Commission report, which was a commission on civil unrest. And I'm just going to read that quote again. It's actually part of an interview that's quoted in the report and it says the average black person couldn't give less of a damn about what the media says the intelligent black person is resentful at what he considers to be totally false portrayal of what goes on most black people see the newspapers as mouthpieces of the power structure so how was the media viewed in your home you know it's very interesting because that last sentence i think still
1: resonates today And I know in Cincinnati in particular, that is something that we have to deal with a lot here. But in my home, I never heard that kind of language. Like in my home, it was about, you need to know what's going on in your community. And I think my parents and my aunts and uncles, they saw the newspaper as their preferred way of getting information. Even now, my mom reads the career journal every day. It's very interesting because my dad's sister, my aunt, she's deceased now, but she really loved the newspaper because I just remember when the Courier Journal got new presses several years ago, they opened it up to the public and you could come take a tour. Well, she went to take a tour. She's like, I want to see where my local newspaper is published. And even to this day, like my mom will call me or text me and she'll say, did you read such and such story in the Courier Journal today? You need to read this story. It was a really, really good story about whatever it is. She still does that to this day. And it's just amazing because the Courier Journal and the Cincinnati Inquirer are owned by Gannett, which is part of USA Today Network. And so many times, like, I just went down there in September to help cover protests in derby weekend. And my mother was super excited because I was going to be working for the Courier Journal for two days. She said, "Well, who are you going to be working with?" And I will tell her the reporter's name. She's, "Oh, tell her that I read her article. She knows their names. She knows everybody's names. She must be so proud of you. She is. She's very proud. She's very proud. And then my mom's sister is the same way." The Courier-Journal, I would say, they do a really good job with connecting with the community there. But yeah, so my family dynamic, I never heard that. Now, they may say, well, I didn't, they may say, oh, I didn't agree, especially because of the op-ed. They may say, well, I didn't agree with that opinion. But it was never like, don't read the paper or don't, you know, they're just put down a Black community. They're like, we need to know what's going on. And then, and I will have to tell you too, this is the other thing I was thinking about when we before we got on the phone call. My family is a family of firsts. I'll start with my, my dad's sister. My aunt was part of the first Blacks that went to Louisville Male High School. She was one of the first to integrate that school. 52 years ago, I believe. My father used to work for the Kroger Company back in those days in the 80s he was one of the very few black male uh, store managers my mother and my mother didn't graduate from college as soon as she graduated from high school she started working for the bank of louisville and she would take all these classes and she went into management training and she was i think probably the only female black vice president of the bank and that bank they had like 30 branches at the time. So she was the first. Then I come along, I was the first and probably the only Black female photographer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Canton, Ohio, at the newspapers. I'm pretty sure I was the only one in Biloxi, Mississippi, at the Sun-Herald. And at the Times-Picune, there was some male Black photographers. And in Cincinnati, they had several male Black photographers, but I think I was I am the only female Black
0: photographer at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And presumably the first female Black director of photography there too. Oh yeah, that's for sure.
1: And as far as Black female photographers across the country, there's a lot. But working at daily newspapers, I have a really good friend. She's the director of photography at the Philadelphia Enquirer. And she tries to keep tabs of which ones work at the newspapers. And the last time she tried to count, there's like, that we know
0: of, 15. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not many. Oh gosh, that really isn't very many. You're talking nationally, the number of black photographers working in newspapers. So I'm talking about black female photographers working at daily newspapers.
1: And I would say even people of color, back when I was at Western in the 90s, there were very few of us. As far as you're talking about a black female, at that time when I was
0: there, I was the only one. Right. So what's it like being this trailblazer and going into these various media establishments, which are largely white. Are you having to educate your colleagues oh to gosh. see things that they are not otherwise? Yes. Okay. Right. It sounds like I don't even need to finish that question. <laughs> Tell me about you know, that.
1: You know, it's funny. I have to laugh. I have to laugh about it to keep from crying. I really do. Because as I said earlier, it's 25 years in. And I think there were things early on in my career that kind of prepared me for being a manager and having a seat at the table and having these discussions about what stories we should cover and what we should not, what should go on the front page and what should not. And I'm, I'm going to just give you something that happened to me when I was like 21 years old. So I was working in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I had this great internship. So I was super excited. Had never been to Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm like five hours away from home, not super far away from home. And And I'm just happy-go-lucky, wasn't sure what to expect other than just to learn. And I had this assignment to spend the day with a family um, that owned a small general store out in the country. Of course, I wasn't. I'm just thinking I'm trying to get the best pictures I can. And the family was very nice. And I felt like that day I didn't get what I could have. And so I asked him if I could come back and I said, well, what would be a good time? And they said, well, if you come tomorrow morning, like around seven, there's a lot of guys, they sit around and drink coffee. And he said, why don't you come back then? So I said, okay. So I go back, I'm taking pictures. The owner and his wife were just, like I said, they were great. And these old guys, and not all of them old, were sitting around a table drinking coffee. And I remember they were just laughing and cutting up telling the stories. And this one man And I had been there for a minute and I don't know what made him think, oh, there's a black girl here. I I don't know his thoughts, but he was an older gentleman. And he says, yeah, they tell me they, meaning his family, they tell me my grandmother was black and ugly like her over there. (gasps) And he points at me and you could hear a pin drop. I just got numb and I'm like, like, what am I supposed to do? Should I run out of here in fear for my life? Like, I didn't know what to do. And I just sat there. And the reporter, who was a veteran reporter, and I don't even remember his name, which is probably good. He says nothing. Nobody said a word, including myself. And I just sat there because I just didn't know how to process it. And so I tell you that story because that prepared me that I need to learn to speak up. I didn't know that at the time. But as years went on, I knew that I had to learn how to speak up for myself or speak up to say, this is what we should be doing for this story. or this is how we should tell the story. Or we need some people of color for this story. Like we got all these white faces. What about the black and brown people of our community? So I've had to do that, but I can't sit there and be silent. I just feel like God put me in this position for a reason. It wasn't just so I could take great pictures and get awards. It wasn't just for that. It was for more to speak out for my community. So from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I go to Canton, Ohio, the chief photographer, he and I became great friends. We still talk. And his wife, I just loved her too. And we just were really, really good friends. But he was a great boss. His wife used to work at the paper. So when I drove from Fort Wayne to Canton for the interview, he had left me a message before I even got back to Fort Wayne saying he wanted to offer me the job. Super excited. You know, I had like two or three weeks before I moved to Canton. His wife called. They knew I was young. At that point, I was probably 22. She said, Kara, I just want to prepare you for something. I'm not trying to scare you or anything. I just want you to know that some of the older white males, one in particular, is already saying that you got hired just because you're a black woman and they needed a black face in the newsroom. That's the kind of stuff I had to come into. And so I took it as a challenge. I took it as, I'm going to come there. I'm going to work my butt off and I'm going to make the best images as possible. And that's exactly what I did. But those are the kind of challenges that I had to take on early on in my in my career. But I think all of those helped me to grow and helped me to be stronger because I have to be strong when I'm on these meetings. And talk about coverage. Like, I have to speak up all the time. And sometimes, i tell you, it's exhausting. Like, really, we're still having these same conversations. But I will have to say, the past two years has been much, much better. And I'm going to tell you why it's become better. And I hate that Black men and Black women have been killed by the police. But it has made people wake up.
0: Even journalists. It has
1: made everybody wake up and to see what is going on.
0: So you were saying you were tired of having these same conversations. So what kind of conversations might be an example of something that you kind of have again and again, and people were not understanding what you were saying because they were coming from a different perspective?
1: I'll give you one that's really very general, but one that everybody will understand who this person is. When celebrities die, very well-known celebrities, we put it in the newspaper, right? I can remember And this is at a point where I wasn't really a manager, but I helped run the photo desk. So I would sit in these meetings to talk about what was going on page one. So you remember when Whitney Houston died? She was pretty young. She was like the number one pop selling artist or whatever it was. Everybody knew Whitney Houston. And at that time, there was another black woman who was our entertainment editor. And we're sitting in this meeting to talk about what was going on page one. And we're like, "Uh, Whitney Houston died? Like everybody knows who Whitney Houston, they was like, Whitney Houston, why shouldn't she be on the front page? We had to fight to get Whitney Houston on the front page. And then I can't remember, somebody else had died that year. Uh, you know, this is several years ago, but it was a white artist. Well, the white artist got put on the front page, right? But Whitney Houston was somebody that everybody knew. And so we had to explain that kind of stuff. And they didn't want to do it. And so, of course, they ended up putting it on the front page. That's just one instance. Another instance was we had a story, and this is recent. It was last summer. We had an article about Cincinnati City Council members who owe taxes, local taxes. Some owe 100 bucks, some owe 1,000 bucks. There are some that own several thousands. The person who planned the page one cover decides to put headshots of the black city council members all on the front page. Then you open up the inside and then it's the white people, city council, what they owe. And when I got up that morning and saw the newspaper, our newspaper had a different format then. It wasn't a broadsheet like what we have now. So it was very small. You could only get like two or three stories on the front page. And he put all these black people's headshots. And it looked like mugshots with their
0: names on the front page. I was livid. But how why did he put the black people on the front page and the white people inside? Was there any kind of rationale as to why? Yes,
1: what he said was, is because the white people had paid theirs off.
0: Okay, so they were all late paying the taxes, but some of them had paid them off and some hadn't, right? Yeah, he said that the white people that were on the inside, that they had already paid
1: theirs off. And I said, first of all, did you look at the amount? Like the white people owe way more money than some of the Black city council members. And he was like, what would you have done? I said, I wouldn't have run a headshot on the front page at all. I would have had a picture of city council. I said, we have plenty of pictures of city council. The building is beautiful. Why not run a picture of city hall on the front page? Because what you're doing, it looked like mugshot. And people like the NAACP was upset about it. I mean, we end up having to have talked to people and it was a mess, but he did not understand. And so we already have a very fragile relationship with the Black community here. And this is why and we continue to do this kind of stuff. We have to be more
0: aware of what we're doing. And actually, it's interesting that we're talking about mugshots, because it's not that long ago that Gannett, which, as you were talking about, owns the Cincinnati Inquirer, decided to remove mugshot galleries altogether because of this understanding that they can perpetuate negative stereotypes, often negative racial stereotypes. That's correct. Was that a piece of news you were happy to read? I was, but our property did not do that.
1: As far as the photo galleries. Of just mugshots, mugshot. We didn't do that, but what we did do, we would take a mugshot. Sometimes it was a driver's license, but still, it looked like a mugshot, and we would use it as what we call a promo image for our website. So you would see such and such was arrested for whatever, whatever, and you would see this headshot, and. Now we did do that, so now we do not. Our policy is not to do that anymore, and I'm very glad that we don't. I think there's so many other things that we still need to improve on in Cincinnati. I'm only going to speak for the property I work for. We have made some great changes of how we cover uh, our communities, especially the ones who represent people of color. I still think we have a long way to go. We do have some challenges because of staffing. Our budgets are cut. We've had furloughs this year. So we do have a lot of challenges. But with the staff that we have in Cincinnati, I think we have really tried to make sure that we're covering our communities well and trying to do the best that we can. We are very intentional to make sure that we are able to cover certain things. like Back when the George Floyd protests sparked all over the country. They were huge here as well. And I was out in the streets for hours, taking photos, doing video. And we wanted to make sure that we were telling the story that these voices were being heard and we want to make sure we documented that. And it was a lot of work, but I would do it all over again. I mean, I would be out there for hours and hours all over
0: again. Well, it was a part of history. Coming back to the subject of racial equity and reporting, you said, you said there have been a lot of changes that have been made that are positive in terms of this issue, and there are a lot of changes you still like to see made. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the changes that have happened and some that you still like to see? Probably the biggest thing that we have to
1: be very intentional about is no matter what your beat is, while you're covering these beats, look for stories about not just Black people, but other ethnic groups in the community within that beat. So that's what we try to do. Like we had a story about two gentlemen who opened up a brewery in Cincinnati. One of the owners is Asian and one of them is black. It's the first minority owned brewery in Cincinnati. Like that kind of thing. Because you have to cover your beat, but let's look for other things to add to your beat that talk about what minorities are doing within the community. So that's one thing we do. The other thing I really hope we get to do, we have a position still open from when Mark Knute, um left us um, and he covered minority affairs and immigration. We still haven't been able to fill his spot in
0: that is because of our budgets. I really hope that we can get that filled at some point. When things do open up, do you get a lot of applications from people of color or is that also a struggle? That is a struggle. I don't know if it's because of our company
1: or if it's because of the location because if you're from LA or if you're from Dallas Texas you don't know that the city's pretty diverse and I think that's something that we probably need to put in our job descriptions because if you're from another part of the country you've never been to Cincinnati you have no idea what it's like here what the culture is like here so no I had a position open for a photojournalist uh, a little over two years ago And we were hoping to hire a person of color. Actually, we're really hoping to hire um, a Spanish speaker because of our population here. And so we're looking, we're looking, and I'm getting all these applications. And there were some people of color who applied, but they didn't have the experience. I don't have time to train anybody. I need somebody who's going to come in here ready to work. I can't train them. And we needed somebody at least five years experience. And like I said, it could be on our part, too, of not putting in that job description how diverse this community is. Um, I did get one name from a friend, and he's super talented, and we talked on the phone, and he was from somewhere in South America, but he said the one thing you should never say in a job interview, is said, oh, I'm just looking to work somewhere for like a year so I can go back home and work for my hometown paper. Because I know that I need somebody that's going to stay a while. I really was interested in him because I "I can't hire somebody who's going to leave me in a year. So that didn't work out. But no, we have had a hard time hiring people of color. We did hire a reporter at the beginning of the year. Very talented. He's gone after eight months. Somebody else scooped him up.
0: So I'm wondering if you know anything about how, how um, so you came through a university program. Do you know what the university programs are currently looking like in terms of diversity of students? I do not know. I can only tell you what I've seen. So
1: I have a really good relationship with Western Kentucky University. I usually go down once a year and critique portfolios with other photojournalists. As far as like what I see, there's still very few people of color. In that program, and I'm and I'm saying from what I see now, they could have been more. But for them that would come to get their portfolios critiqued and they would listen to a panel discussion amongst myself and probably like ten to twelve other photojournalists from around the country, from what I have seen, there's still very few. And I don't know if the school reaches out to try to recruit more, or but I also know it's very intimidating as well. Currently, I don't think they have any professors of people of color in the photojournalism
0: program so if we've got any people who are listening who are people of color thinking of going into journalism some sort or people listening who might know people of color who might think of going into journalism even though they might be quite isolated in terms of being the only person of color in that field in whatever area they are in do you have any words of encouragement for them i do and i would have to say you know I'm a straight shooter. I'm just going to say this.
1: It is not easy. It's not easy being the only Black. I can only speak for a Black person, but I know for me, my experience, it has not been easy, but it has also been rewarding. If this is something that you want to do, you can't expect it to be easy. You have to learn to deal with being uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable makes you grow and that you can do it. Like if I can do it, if I can be in this business for 25 years coming from where I came from, not to say I, you know, just saying when I say coming from where I came from, I was not used to being the only black kid because I went to a very diverse high school. I was not used to that. So when I got to college, I was the only black kid in all my journalism classes, but I was able to stick in there and just keep growing and keep growing. And I didn't care what these other photojournalists looked like. I just felt like it was an opportunity for me to learn from other photojournalists, and I did. All the way from the ones in the classrooms, the instructors, when I got the internships. I mean, there was a lot of white people, majority of all white people, who helped me get to where I am today because they were willing to share their talent with me. They taught me how to shoot baseball. They taught me how to shoot portraits or to light things. And I was able to take all that and to just keep running in this career. And I absolutely love it. I just feel like anything worth having you got to really work hard at it. It's not going to come easy, but it is so rewarding. And I just feel like that we're all here for a purpose. And if that's your purpose, then you can do it and you'll get through it. The other thing, too, I want to say, I have seen so many college students not take advantage of listening to veteran journalists. And to make sure if you have that opportunity to speak with a photojournalist or a journalist, to make sure you really listen to what they're saying. And when they offer you, hey, if you need to talk about something, if you need me to edit something, take them up on it. Because if you can get that individual attention, that is, is, for me, it just helped me grow so much. And I know, I feel like that so many times the younger generation does not take that. They don't take that advice. So I would just say, be aware of that and search for opportunities and also get connected if you're a black journalist you need to get connected with the national association of black journalists and there's other minority organizations these organizations are like families and a lot of times it's not always about what you know but who you know i know that i got my job in new orleans because of nabj so that kind of thing looks for those opportunities as well to get connected
0: well that's great advice so thank you so much cara oursley for taking part in this podcast episode you're so welcome and thank you for having me on Again, Cara Owsley is Director of Photography at the Cincinnati Enquirer. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sokolovsky Music at SokolovskyMusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.